Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff, and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now, your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman. Well, hey, leaders, it's Kerry Newhoff here. Welcome to another episode of Church Pulse Weekly. I will soon be joined by David Kinneman, the president and CEO of Barna Group. So glad to have you along. And man, it's been a long, long haul. I know you're tired. And we hope to be a little bit of insight, some inspiration, as well as some of the, the latest trends that we're seeing in the church and in the world. And thank you so much for being part of this journey. If you're brand new to the podcast, welcome. If you've been around since we started it about a year and a half ago, we're so glad that you've hung in there and that you've hung into leadership, man. A lot of people are quitting. Thank you for hanging in there. We hope this is encouragement in your weekly journey. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe. If you're a regular listener, we would love a rating and review. When you share a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, that really makes a difference to us and helps us get in front of other people. So, Today, David is going to have a conversation with Sky Jatani and Kimberly Deckel, and he's going to introduce you to them in just a moment, and we're going to talk about physical space. We are continuing our six-week series on Church Pulse Weekly in partnership with the Aspen Group, and the series is called Making Space, Six Conversations About In-Person Discipleship in a Digital World. So in our conversations in this mini-series, we're giving a lot of focus to the other side of the coin of hybrid church, physical space. Because for the first 18 months, guess what we talked about? Digital church. Because for a while, that was all we had. But your buildings are reopened or reopening. People are regathering more slowly than you like. And this is an opportunity to really rethink everything. So we want to go down to a fairly deep level of conversation. And David will do that with Sky and with Kimberly. So uh, they're going to cover worship throughout the week that avoids consumption. How do you do that? an advantage that maybe liturgical traditions have in this moment? And then uh, what about your embodied practices versus disincarnated ones? Or how about doing a liturgical audit of your service? Are there implicit and explicit beliefs played out through your church design? And then even reconsidering the focal points of worship. What happens with when you've got a screen as a focal point? So David's going to introduce you to our guests in just a moment, but we're so glad you joined us for this episode. And without further ado, here is David's conversation with Sky and Kimberly. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Sky and Kimberly. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background for the listeners. Sky Jathani is an award-winning author, speaker, consultant, and minister. Sky also serves as the co-host of the popular Holy Post podcast, a show that I love to go on, a weekly show that blends astute cultural and theological insights with comical conversations with Phil Vischer. And uh, Reverend Kimberly Deckel is an ordained Anglican priest currently serving as an executive pastor at the Church of, of the Cross in Austin, Texas. Uh, Kimberly also has extensive experience as a clinical social worker, and she currently serves as the director of operations for the Surge Network, a network of local churches providing theological education and missional and church planning support in the Phoenix area. Thanks so much for joining me, guys. Thanks for being here. Sky, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for uh, having me, David. Yeah, and Kimberly, how, how's yeah, it going? Good. Glad to be here. Yeah. yeah, you were just you were just saying you're in the middle of a, a transition. Tell us a little bit about that. We are. Yeah, so we're in Phoenix still, transitioning to Austin. Um, 
we're a part of the Anglican Church in North America, and we're moving to another church in our diocese, which is Churches for the Sake of Others in Austin, and we're excited about that. But, you know, just in this, like, limbo right now between Phoenix and Austin. Yeah. When, when is the yeah. move date? So November 20th is our official move date. We've got, you know, a little over a month to go. Um, it'll go really fast, I know. So we're just trying to tie up loose ends here and all of that. So. Yeah, well, well, prayers for you and, and good luck Thanks. in all that. Um, as we said in the introduction, we're talking about uh, physical space and digital space and all that we've seen, all that we've learned, all that we've lost in the last year and a half. And I want to start with a stat, ask each of you guys to respond to this um, and, and your perspectives on it. So nearly four in five uh, U.S. adults who are churchgoers, so 78% of churchgoers, say that experiencing God in a church service alongside others is very important to them. Reactions, first to you, Kimberly. Yeah, I mean, when I hear that, I'm like, yes, amen. I agree, right? Um, I feel that, like, it seems deep in my bones. Um, it's been interesting, too, just as I've talked to people um, in so many different church contexts over the last year and a half or so, and where so many people, like, agree with that and that resonates with them, but then also people will comment on having just kind of gotten out of the habit of going to church on Sundays, and so that, like, tension of of yes, worshiping with people in a building together on a Sunday is so important, but also um, like kind of building that habit back up again can feel a little bit daunting. Sky, what about you? Uh, yeah, amen as well. But the, the question I always want to ask is, I, I want more detail. I want to know what is it about the gathering that they experience God through? And I mean, even scripture tells us to gather together and not give it up. Um, I found in my experience when the years I was a pastor is the people who don't tend to have a self-generating communion with God tend to rely more heavily mm-hmm. on the gathered experience as a crutch, essentially, for their their spiritual lives. So if it's a healthy dependency on the gathering, that's good. If it's an unhealthy dependency or an alternative from their own communion with God, that's bad. So I always want to go deeper into these stats to find out what's really behind the numbers. Well, awesome. It sounds like there's a role here for Barna for you because we're always interested in some of the, the deeper story behind the, the data. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you guys sort of saw this last year in your own in your own ministry. You know, what what have we learned? We, we sort of alluded to this a little bit, you know, Kimberly, about the habit forming nature of this pandemic. Um, what, what do you think we've learned as leaders about the nature of religious practice, you, you know, generally? What do you what do you think we're we're seeing? First to you, Kimberly. Yeah, I think that, as, so I have an advantage, I think, in a sense of in Phoenix, having been ministering and present in a local church parish, but then also doing a lot of work with churches like outside of my denomination and all over kind of the greater Phoenix area. And, you know, as we've talked to people, um, I mean, I think we've, we've learned a lot. We're still learning those things every day that are kind of surprising us. Um but just a reminder of, of the significance of, of being gathered together physically as, you know, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Sky, I love, you know, that idea of like, why though? Like, why is it that we crave that? And I think a part of what we've noticed um, kind of across the board in terms of how we're discipling and forming our people is that it has, it has to be both, right? There's an importance um, in gathering on a Sunday, but even in, you know, conversations about like what, it, what happens in our faith outside of just Sunday, right? Like, what does it look like to be faithful followers of Jesus um, throughout the week? And a lot of our people haven't been well-formed in that. And I think um, one of the things I've thought a lot about a lot, I think, through the last 
year and a half or so has been um, the conversations we have a lot about how consumeristic our faith um, has become. And so some of what people are missing as, as I've talked to folks is kind of like the consumption, like coming on a Sunday, being comfortable, like what can I take from this? And so I think that this is an opportunity for us to begin to think too, what does it look like for our people to think about like worship and a faithful life to God and mission all through the week and not depending just on a Sunday service. Um, I'm a part of a liturgical tradition. And so thankfully um, there's a lot of things kind of built into our faith already in terms of our practices and the book of common prayer that our people can really be, be doing at home. And this has been even more of an opportunity, I think, for us to think about what does it look like for them to deeply engage in their faith and those practices, not just dependent on a Sunday and on clergy um, celebrating the Eucharist or leading the serpent. Yeah. How about you, Sky? Yeah, I think this is, this is a really fascinating moment for the church. And you guys have been talking about this for months on, on your show and through the yeah. research at Barna. But I think what it's uncovering is some of the strengths and weaknesses of the American church and the different traditions we're a part of. Kimberly's already mentioned she's an Anglican, a more liturgical tradition. And those traditions have an advantage, I think, honestly, in this moment, because as the pandemic hopefully lifts and we can gather once again in communities, church traditions that have emphasized bodies, meaning our physical embodied worship experience and the physicality of that through things like the table and the Eucharist and kneeling and standing and reciting prayers together as a community and smells and symbols, all those physical realities of worship, you can't really disincarnate digitally. So there's more of an incentive for people to regather in their church buildings and in their congregations. Whereas other traditions of, especially of evangelicalism for decades, disincarnating our churches. And we've been essentially behaving as if people are brains on sticks. And all that matters is the passive consumption of a sermon or maybe passive or semi-active engagement with music. And sermons and music are the easiest things to disincarnate and to digitally gate to people. And that may have been an advantage during the middle of the pandemic because you could put a sermon online, you could do music over internet. But now that the pandemic's seen, we've conditioned people to not come back into physical gatherings because if you think the church is basically a sermon and you can get that streaming on your computer, why trouble of getting your family and household up and out of bed in the morning on Sunday and get them to a church building? There's no real reason. Our, our ecclesiology in a lot of our churches is a disembodied one. It's just information. And if that can be transmitted anyway, why bother going back to the physical space? So this is a moment that's really uncovering our deficiencies, I think, in the way we've thought about church for decades, not just during the pandemic. Very interesting. And um, we know from the research that the preferences for church services coming out of the pandemic is actually leaning towards physical uh, physical environments. So 44% of U.S. adults who are churchgoers said that they'll prefer um, physical, primarily physical gatherings, 12% want primarily digital gatherings, so a little more than one in 10. And then 32% say they want uh, both, um, both physical and uh, digital. And then 12% say neither. These are people who have attended some church in, in recent months. So it's kind of interesting that we've been talking about this sort of uh, I think it's accelerating disconnection from those who already had one hand on the door. Uh, so people are, are leaning towards physical, but there's a real appetite now for hybrid. We're going to talk a lot about physical uh, church and the need for that. But just before we kind of move move on, um, what are some of the you know what are some of the benefits, or what do you 
see as the future of hybrid or digital ministry. Uh, do you have thoughts about that, Sky? I mean, you just said that there's, you know, ser- sermons and and songs or things that can be uh, effectively de- delivered digitally, and maybe other things can't. But but what do you think are some of the the hopes or cautions we should have around uh, sort of the sort of hybrid ministry and digital ministry? It's obviously a feature that's going to be here to stay in some ways coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, I, and I, I think we just need wisdom around what what is appropriate to disincarnate and what is not. I'd love again to go deeper into the data and find out among that large group of people who want physical gathering, what is it about the gathering that they find really valuable and important? My hunch is, I could be wrong, but my hunch is it's probably not the sermon. Because again, they can get that anytime, anywhere through podcast, video, through streaming, through all kinds of means, what they anytime, anywhere is the gathering of God's people in incarnate community where they can engage their friends and colleagues and people in their church in a, a, a human way. It's not easy to online and it's not easy to stream. So I think we got to drill down deeper and, and look at theologically, even biblically, what's appropriate to transmit via media and what has to remain in person and incarnate. And frankly, a lot of American evangelical has done a terrible job of thinking of all that matters is the message. And yet we're people of the incarnation. We're people who believe that the physical incarnate presence of God really, really matters. And so we have a deeper dive into what that can look like. You go back even to the first centuries, and even the apostles realized teaching is the easy thing to disincarnate. Paul wrote letters that were transmitted to church. And yet there are other things like the gathering of the rich and poor around the communion meal, which had to be present and physical and in a gathered space. So we need to do that same work for the century and ask, what have we centered our churches on in the gathering that actually is better to disincarnate? And what should we be using those buildings and facilities for that you can't disincarnate? Ironically, in a lot of evangelical American churches, we've done it backwards. We've built our buildings around the delivery of a lecture, and we've Mm -hmm. not built them our actual community engagement, which we expect people to do in their homes. We probably need to reverse that in the years ahead. What do you think? Um, this sort of th- you're, you're sort of alluding to some of this stuff, but what are some of the opportunities that you think this moment provides us to think theologically about the uh, the sort of the discipleship and sort of spiritual formation activities of uh, a congregation of a faith community? Kimberly, what do you think? Well, um, so one thing I wanted to say briefly too, that I think is an advantage or something related to um, like having virtual services an opportunity or as an option for people is for people like who have disabilities, people who maybe um, are um, more susceptible to getting sick or ill or can't travel. Those are the folks that I've heard say like, don't, don't let go of this. Like I haven't been able to regularly attend church for for years, maybe, and this has given me that opportunity. Um, so that's felt really important. You know, being in a, in a liturgical tradition um, that I think, you know, is, is not perfect, but um, really has a deep appreciation and understanding um, for the, the church historic and what it looks like to follow a liturgy and each Sunday um, through our liturgy, liturgy to kind of walk through and act out the drama of scripture, right? Um, so I think as I think about and talk with other folks who are maybe in less um, liturgical traditions, talking about like, what does it look like to begin to develop a bit more of a liturgy? And of course, most churches have some type of a liturgy, whether or not they recognize it, but what does it look like to look back 
um, to what it looks like to, to structure our services around creation, fall, redemption, restoration, so that each Sunday um, we're steeped in the word and the sacrament, um, and that less, so that less focus is on like the preacher or the pastor. I think some of those just even physical things like like stages with the pastor higher up, um, you know, it says something right about what we focus on or maybe see as important on Sundays. And so I think we can actually, you know, in this moment that we're in, take advantage of of a really hard, bad season that we've been in, but in that like pause, all right, what are things that we can think about differently as we begin to slowly re-enter into regular Sunday worship? And I think some of those things may be around um, the emphasis that's that put on the sermon or the pastor, or the people leading, and more of the emphasis being on Christ's presence with us on Sunday. Yeah, uh, to Kimberly's point, to go back to the first thing that Kimberly, which is really important, I think the digital technology does give us a great way to serve those who are um, immune compromised, who are shut-ins, who are elderly, who can't be mobile. But they're sort of the exception that I think proves the rule. Right, we want to accommodate and minister to those people, but it that doesn't take away from the theological foundation that we are called to be an incarnate people, an incarnate expression, fully embodied humans. The way that Jesus was fully God and fully man, we are to be fully in communion with Him and fully in communion with Him, and that includes physical gatherings. Uh, regarding the theological piece of this, I, I'm thinking back to my undergraduate years when I was at a secular university studying religion. And I had a professor of American religion who gave us the assignment to visit every church in our little college town, but not on a Sunday. Mm. And we were supposed to sit in all of their worship spaces and make observations about the space. Just how was it designed? What's the visual focus? Characteristics do you see? What symbols are present or absent? And then after that, we were to research each church's stated doctrines and beliefs. And the most interesting stuff was when the physical space contradicted the doctrines of the church. And the language he used was implicit and explicit theology. Our explicit theology is the stuff we teach. Implicit theology is everything that's nonverbal, that's communicated by the gatherings that we hold. So for example, a church might say that we believe in the body of Christ, that everyone is gifted and everyone has a contribution to make. But when the gathering of that community focused on preacher, the implicit message is you really don't matter as much as that guy up front who's got a Bible open, who's the center of everyone's attention. Um, or if you say, uh, you know, we center our community across, but you're community really gathers around a coffee bar in the foyer rather than the communion table in the sanctuary, then you're not really gathered around the cross, you're gathered around the coffee. And so the, it sounds trivial, but over time, especially if people meet for years within a community or a space, that implicit theology ends up forming them way more than the explicit theology. So the goal in any church is for the implicit and explicit to reinforce each other. That what you say is reinforced by how you worship, by the space you're, the symbols that are present, by the uh, design and, and orientation of the seating, whatever it might be. And, and so this is an opportunity, this reset moment for all of us to think through how does my space and the, the liturgy of my brain contradict what I want people to be formed into or reinforce it. Older traditions usually have thought about this more and have more of a um, a history that grounds them. And it. it's some of the newer, more innovative thinking in the church that tends not to understand the importance of combining these two. Seems like it'd be an interesting um, exercise for 
any listener uh, who's interested in, in sort of aligning implicit and explicit messaging, uh, in, implicit and explicit theology to, to almost do a, an assessment of that among their church staff, their teams, yeah. uh, maybe even among people who are coming from, uh, who are visitors or who, you know, sort of like yeah. some, some sort of man off the street uh, kind of kind of things. We've actually done some of that work in our uh, partnership with Aspen, who's part of this, the this, the series here, this Making Space series, um, when we did our Making Space for Millennials project, we actually brought mm-hmm. both Christian and non-Christian millennials into various worship spaces and asked them kind of what were the things that they experienced in a more traditional form and in a more traditional format, more uh, contemporary format. It was very interesting to see, you know, how Christians and non-Christians and and young people generally sort of responded. So I think that'd be a fun exercise and and, and very worthwhile. Yeah. Um, um, just to just to push back a little bit, Sky, you know, the couple of examples that you gave are they're they're sort of self obvious. The idea that we center a community around the teaching or around you know the the coffee bar, um, you know, obviously those aren't wrong things to do. But what are what are what are maybe more nuanced things that you think we could look at in in terms of aligning explicit and implicit, you know, uh, sort of theological assumptions about how space shapes us. Uh, yeah, I mean, and this depends on each community. I'm not here to tell each church what they should value. I'm just saying that what you think you value may not be reinforced by the space you're gathering in. So if if mm-hmm. if the emphasis of your community is absolutely the preaching of the word of God, then it makes sense that your whole congregation would be facing the preacher during the whole sermon or that the pulpit is the centerpiece, the visual focus of the space. Is that right or wrong? Depends on your tradition. Uh, what bothers me is when the explicit and implicit don't line up or you say one thing and it's contradicted by the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, another one would be, I think we need to really think hard about what's the role of screens in our worship, mm-hmm. right? And we, we are bombarded by screens. We're all looking at each other on a screen right yeah. now, right? We are always in front of a screen in our society. So when they, when the people of your church gather together for worship, what are they primarily looking at? Are they looking at another screen? And what does that form them in? What is, is that good or bad? Another thing to consider, and I know there's a wide spectrum of this uh, issue for churches, but what might be affirming or attractive to a non-believer coming into your church might be very different than what will actually form somebody into a deeper communion with Christ and one another. So Mm -hmm. if you're designing your space to be appealing to non-believers, it's going to be very different than if you're designing your space to be spiritually formative and deepening the spiritual lives of believers. Uh, again, churches fall in different categories there, but be intentional about your space and make sure it's doing what you intended to do rather than something accidental. Mm-hmm. Kimberly, I'd love to ask you a little about liturgical traditions. You've you, you said Sky is sort of affirmed, and I think it's, it's right to say that uh, liturgical and those kinds of traditions that have had, um, you know, sort of a script for the everyday parts of worship and, and some of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the benefits of, of uh, sort of common prayer and, and other liturgical elements. Yeah. But for a lot of our listeners, they'll be in, in non-denominational or um, non-liturgical environments. What are some things that you think might be principles that could be applied to, to this idea of the benefits of the Anglican tradition, liturgical tradition that, you know, doesn't require sort of a, a, an operating system change, right? So like, are there ways that you think we could as, non-denominational or less liturgical leaders uh, apply some of what is working uh, going forward? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's like an easy starting point for a lot of people is pick up the book of common prayer. 
Um, it's something that I, I know of other churches that aren't, you know, technically like an Anglican church that will use the Book of Common Prayer and even kind of walk their people through it and just an understanding of what it is to engage in morning prayer or compline. Um, those have been opportunities, you know, even through the pandemic when people weren't gathered together of just beginning to engage in that practice and that rhythm. Um, I think one of the things that's beautiful about the Book of Common Prayer or other prayer books is that sometimes when we just don't know what to pray, we have the, the book there, the prayer there to help us um, engage. And so I think that's a, a simple starting point. I'd love to encourage churches to, um, you know, similar like this assessment idea of even looking through, like, what does our Sunday worship look like? Um, is our Sunday worship focused um, on the word and on who Jesus is, or is it focused more on maybe other things? And that's, you know, up for up to everybody to sort of assess and each church is different and not going to do it exactly the same. But I think oftentimes when we pause and really think about what our Sunday looks like, um, it may not be as focused on um, on the word and on the story and, and just the drama of scripture. And so those are, I think, some easy starting points. I'm, of course, like a proponent of um, weekly Eucharist. I think that can be an important thing um, to consider the, the power of that and the importance of that in our worship. And then I do think there's some simple things, even in the way that like any church has kind of a stage or an altar, like how is that constructed um, can be a really like practical thing to think about who is or what is the focus on? What are we drawing our people's attention to mm. um, when they're worshiping with us on Sunday? I know a lot of churches are using, um, especially some of the larger churches, but they'll build out, you know, sort of different backgrounds or different sort of staging for various series Again, I, I just know we have so many different kinds of, of churches that are represented in, in listener in, in our listeners and, and in the church today. And so, do you have any thoughts, uh, either of you, about you know, sort of coming out of, of um, out of COVID, how some of that staging or some of the the focal points of worship, and, and knowing that we've got some people who are also you know sort of tuning in digitally, whether we like it or don't like it. What what are ways that we might think about the the focal point of of worship? Um, because there is a place for arts, there is a place for mm -hmm. cre creative work, and you know, I, I think, I think to the extent that a, a church budget can can um, can handle that, and doesn't have to cost a lot. But what are, what are some things you think might be sort of opportunities for focal points of worship, both physically and digitally? Wow, uh, that, that's a question I hadn't thought about, but <laughs> I, I don't know if I have a great other than um, an awful lot of our churches are designed or predicated on theater. And we don't even think about it, but that's not how it's been throughout most of history. Mm -hmm. Like the, the idea of a stage with a backdrop with, uh, or, or even camera angles, all of that is only about, I mean, cameras more recent, but even the church as a theater is only about a hundred years old. Prior to that, the focus was not a stage. It was an altar. Prior to that, it, it wasn't about a space for a theatric performance. It was, in some cases, a, a, a ship's prow with a pulpit at the top of it. Um, and I think the deeper question we need to be asking is, if our church is really a theater, then what are we training our people to be? We're not training them to be worshipers. We're training them to be spectators. We're training them to be consumers. We're not... Um, in a theater, you are a passive observer. You're not a participant. And I think that's the danger of the theater-based model. And the degree to which we can 
uproot that in this moment and re-engage people as full participants in the community, I think is, is challenging given the architecture we've inherited for the last few generations. And the degree to which we can use digital technology to engage participation rather than passivity, the better. Mm. Um, I think part of the challenge we have in discipleship today is this passivity that we think we can make disciples passively by communicating information. Argue the data proves that's not working very well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not to upend your question, David, but I, I, the visual arts, I think, are incredibly valuable. And yes, let's do them to the point that they bring participation, not that they bring passivity. And that's what the theater does is it causes us to be passive and we need to challenge yeah. that. Great. I'm happy to have my questions upended. That's why we asked them. <laughs> Kimberly, any thoughts about yeah. uh, this conversation? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. So I think one of them um, is, and this goes back to, I mean, on a Sunday, we, we, we often talk about on a, during a Sunday service, like it's the work of the people. And so it's everybody participating and working together. It's not just one person or a couple people. And so I think that like, yeah, like there's something to be said for like, for things that are visually beautiful. Um, we, you know, depending on liturgical season, we use different colors on our altar, like a beautiful um, sanctuary is an important thing. And, and I think also can draw people's attention to God. Um, but sometimes we, we can um, overemphasize that. And so I think it's kind of finding this balance between like asking the question, like, why are we doing this? Or why might we have this piece of artwork or this on the screen? Um, and then one other thing, like kind of tangent, tangentially related to this, I think just this conversation as a whole is the reminder that that not everybody has always had like the option to have a big, beautiful church building. Lots of right. people still don't have that option. Um, and that there's a lot of space, I think, even for creativity in that. And I think, you know, often think about um, enslaved people and how what church meant to them, right? People who um, couldn't attend churches with white people, or maybe they, maybe they could, but it wasn't a safe, equal option for them. And so um, had to kind of creatively, organically come up with something else, right? And so there was no option of like any type of real building, but, but church happened. And so I think that reminder, and there's certainly people all over the world still today that that is true for. And so I think it's just like important to like note, right? That this conversation is one that really is important, but is also steeped in a lot of privilege. The idea that, that we can even get to like, choose to have a screen or an altar um, that has liturgical colors. Um, I think those are just important things to think about in this conversation. Yeah, that's an important call out. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, in the same kind of tradition, um, the same sort of space that we're talking about in terms of, of altars and, and you know stages and other kinds of things, how do physical objects and spaces, things like the difference between a cathedral and a more conventional kind of uh, you know, sort of um, megachurch space, let's say, or stained glass or other kinds of things. How do those uh, in, input or affect, as you, as you guys see it, the spiritual journey for people? I mean, can they be helpful? Can they be helpful in new ways today? Uh, thoughts on any of those kinds of, of aspects? Some, some stuff we've been talking about, but specifically sort of the, the built environment um, and, and things that are, you know, sort of part of our structures. Yeah, for sure. And you see a long tradition of this in the scriptures and in church history, and even beyond the church. Frankly, every religious tradition in human culture and human history has understood the need to distinguish the sacred from the profane, from things that are special, from things that are ordinary. 
And what we've done in a lot of the American church is we've tried to erase that basic human instinct. And we've tried to make the church as seamlessly profane and mundane as the rest of the culture. Meaning you could walk into a church service in many parts of America and you wouldn't know the difference. I mean, turn off the sound, for example, not listen to the message. You wouldn't know any difference from that gathering from a, a concert of a secular secular performer. Um, and I, I think we do ourselves a disservice. There's something that is inaccurate about anthropology if we think people aren't hungry for the sacred. So to create spaces that are special, I've seen this work with four-year-old children. They know how to enter a sacred space differently than a, a regular space. When you set up a space for four-year-old children that has candles and it's quiet and they're asked to remove their shoes and there's a certain way you enter, it's remarkable how four-year-olds will engage that space sacredly and differently. And they won't be running around and screaming their heads off because they just intuit from the space that this is special. And the same thing's true with adults. I've been in mosques and temples all around the world and all of them ask you to leave something separate outside the space than when you enter it. And it's not because they believe that God is more present in the space than outside of it, but it's for the human preparation to encounter God. And that's true of cathedrals and churches around the world. But in a lot of American churches, we don't want there to be any barrier between the sidewalk and the sanctuary. We want people to just flow and forth seamlessly. And I think we then, we don't prepare them for a is special or God is different or God is holy. And then we aren't, I don't think we should be that surprised when they don't see God as that important in their life should be handled with any special care. So I think that using special objects, special space, special settings trains us in our vision of who God is. And that's something we need to recapture in a lot of the American church. Mm -hmm. What do you think scripture has to tell us about physical space, about built spaces? I mean, clearly there's things about the temple and tabernacle and you know, sort of details that are, that are seem so technical. Um, what do you, what do you think are sort of scriptural principles that might inform today's physical gatherings, both uh, the, the nature of, you know, human on human contact, as well as the, the built spaces that we make for ourselves? One of the places, yeah, that I like to start, and this actually isn't like not a physical building, but I think if we just start in Genesis in the garden um, and just like recall and remember um, how important like space and beauty is and creativity um, and that God made that space for Adam and Eve um, and that, that so much thought and attention to detail was put into that. That to me is a really like kind of easy, basic place to start in scripture from the very beginning um, the garden and then all of God's creation. And so I think for us um, in the current time that we're living in, then that also translates into perhaps a church building, um, but just knowing that, that that beauty is important, that space is important, that a lot of what um, Sky talks about, I mean, that, that entering into physical space, like, especially when we're talking about worship on a Sunday, there is a reverence to that and recognizing that it affects us. You know, I know that like when my house is disorganized like it is right now because we're packing to move, um, I feel differently. My attention isn't maybe where it should be. And so, um, creating beautiful faces. And I think when we think of like, of the garden, um, that's a great place to start. Uh, yeah, I, the garden is a great place to start. Obviously you go on from there in the old Testament and you have the tabernacle and the temple, which the garden was actually a precursor of that, right? The, the temple was designed to be like a garden environment with, with 
vegetation all over the decorating and um, this gold holy of holies. Obviously, we don't worship in a temple space anymore. We believe that the whole world is is God's temple. Um, but then you get into the New Testament and you see that even people in Jesus' physical proximity behaved differently or engaged him differently, yeah. right? They fell on ground before him when they recognized who he was. When the miraculous catch of fish, Peter falls to the Jesus' feet and says, you know, get away from me, I'm a sinner. Um, and you see multiple people do that in Jesus' presence. You see that at the resurrection where he even says, don't touch me because, you know, I've not returned yet to the Father. There's a physicality which is important. And then later, yes, Thomas and the disciples, yeah, you can touch my hands and my side and see it's really me. Um, what we got to be careful of is that we don't fall into the Gnostic heresy of believing that bodies and reality doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The incarnation tells us our bodies matter. The resurrection tells us bodies matter. The physicality with which God created the world and the intentionality that we flourish in garden spaces all speak to the importance of the physical world in which we inhabit. And uh, I think in a lot of American Christianity, we have become functional Gnostics. We just don't mm-hmm. think bodies matter. We don't think space matters. We don't think environment matters. We are just brains on a stick and all that matters is information and content. And everything we know about human nature and religious formation tells us otherwise. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, frankly, we just need to catch up with other disciplines that recognize mm-hmm. space and physicality really, really matter. I'm thinking about this uh, quote that Jesus uh, tells. I, f- I forget uh, which of his encounters. I'm sure one of you can remind me. Uh, but he, he says this revolutionary thing, which is um, the, the person is asking him sort of like, where's the right place to worship? And he says, the time is coming. And now is Mm -hmm. when people who gather in spirit and in truth and worship in spirit and in truth, uh, you know, will, will sort of find me. Right. And um, I don't know why I hadn't thought of that until this minute um, about its own kind of referendum on uh, what we've all been through the last 20 months in that, Mm -hmm. you know, physically or in person, able-bodied or, or not able-bodied privileged or, or less privileged, um, you know, Jesus sort of provides this revolutionary idea that, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the that sacredness can be found sort of in our hearts out of um, worshiping him in spirit and truth. I wonder what you what you think about that in light of the digital the digital context that we're that we're finding ourselves in. Yeah, I think one of the things and I think we've been kind of talking around it quite a bit is that um, the idea of a theology of space. Um, and just this idea of like church building, physical space, we worship on a Sunday, all of that. We have to have, um, I think, like a pretty broad imagination and curiosity for um, for what scripture tells us about this, especially about, I mean, you know, like does scripture say anything about digital worship? Like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> not directly. Um, and so we have to be able, I think, to like really um, imagine beyond even kind of the confines that we put around this conversation. And so, yes, Sunday worship with other people on a, you know, on a Sunday, um, but some, sometimes in the building, sometimes not. Um, and just recognize that, that God and that the power of the spirit, and I think we've seen this over the last year and a half, can't be stopped by a pandemic, um, can't be stopped because we're worshiping virtually from home. Like, is that the ideal? No, but the spirit is moving and always working in us and through us and around us. And so I think it's like, yes, these conversations are super important. That's why I said yes to this. Um, but also, um, 
it's so much more than I think we even have the imagination for. Um, and I, and I love remembering just the importance to, I think of, um, our physical bodies in worship. And that's something else I'd say, even to churches outside of maybe more liturgical traditions, like how do you, um, help your people begin to recognize that like their physical movement and standing and sitting and praying during service is a part of, of worship too. Yeah. David, the text you're referencing is from John's gospel where Jesus is interacting with the, uh, the Samaritan woman. And the, the backstory was that Samaritans and Jews had a fundamental about the proper place to worship God, right? The Jews said in Jerusalem, the temple, and the Samaritans had a different mind where they thought God was to be worshiped. And Jesus dismisses the whole controversy. And that's when he says the day is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And when I was a man, I thought that what Jesus meant by that was doctrinal truth, that we need to have our theology figured out and that God cares about. And in the context in which Jesus was speaking, that can't possibly be what he meant because it was essentially a doctrinal disagreement between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus goes, it doesn't matter which mountain you worship on or what your theology of worship might be. I've since come to realize what Jesus meant, and it makes sense when he's talking to the Samaritan woman who was hiding the truth about herself, that she had multiple men in her life and multiple husbands. When Jesus says he desires those who worship in truth, I think what he's saying there is he's looking for honesty. He's looking for people who worship him out of the honesty of who they are. And this comes out later in his teachings where he talks about the Pharisee and the publican who both go to the temple and one says, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the other says, thank you for not making me like that guy. And it's the humble one who goes away forgiven. Um, and, and that's why really what it comes down to is not just individually, but even corporately as churches, as congregations, are we honest in our worship of God? And that honesty, I think, is what you see in the Psalms. You see a lot of celebratory Psalms, but you actually see more that are full of doubt and anger. And where are you, Lord? And how long do I have to put up with this garbage? There's honesty in the Psalms. And so when we gather as a community to worship, I think it's really, really important that we, we honor God honestly out of who we are. And I think corporately, that also means let's be truly Christian in our worship. Let's not pretend to be something we're not. Let's embrace our history. Let's embrace our symbols. Let's embrace what Christ has given us. Let's embrace the scriptures. Let's not be ashamed of it or try to hide our Christian identity with a fake facade of, you know, 21st century coolness and just be Christian and use all the great things that we've been given throughout our heritage as believers for thousands of years to be the community Christ is calling us to be. And um, yeah, so I mean, I could go on and riff and get on my soapbox about that or even, you know, preach a mini sermon, but that text is a really important one for the way we think about worship. And I think it, it calls us as a community to ask, what are we doing in our gatherings, which is inauthentic? And what can we do to bring that authenticity back? And it's going to look different in different communities and different cultures, but that's a, a great uh, question we should all be asking. Uh, this will probably be my last question, but I might have a follow. So, so stay tuned. But um, uh, what do you think are some innovations uh, that church leaders need to be considering um, about physical space, perhaps digital worship? What, what are things you think would be really helpful? Uh, we've, we've talked about a lot of practical things, I think today, uh, including almost doing a self-assessment of the authenticity, sort of explicit and implicit and other things about, you know, sort of the focal point of ministry and other kinds of questions, but what are some innovations that you would recommend us consider? Hmm. 
Um, I mean, I think, I don't know that I have a lot of really specific ideas in this. I think it feels a little tricky to answer because every church is so different. Um, but I think that, that one of the biggest things that I've learned, and as I've talked to other folks, is that like that idea that I mentioned earlier, how can we use this time to rethink some things? Um, I think this isn't all that innovative, but one of those things that feels important um, is how do we maybe simplify in some ways. Um, and again, not innovative, but just like point our people back to Jesus and kind of the focus back to that um, into his word, because I think that we have leading up to the pandemic um, been a really distracted people. Um, th- this won't make me too popular with the church leaders and pastors who are listening, but I've gotten in trouble saying this in the past. But I think one of the innovations we really need to consider is um, decentralizing preaching as the central act of our gatherings. Most of our church facilities are predicated on a 500-year-old vision and technology. 500 years ago, the printing press was invented and preaching came to the centerpiece of Protestant worship in Northern Europe. And so we rearranged our physical spaces around a lecture, around hearing somebody teach the Bible for 30, 40, 50 minutes, whatever it might be. And we're still under that assumption. And as I said earlier, the teaching of scripture is incredibly important. It's a non-negotiable when it comes to the formation of disciples, but it's also the easiest element church gatherings to disincarnate through technology. It's the easiest thing to transmit via podcast or video and streaming into everyone's homes throughout their, their week. So why do we still make our physical gatherings primarily designed to deliver lecture content? It doesn't make a ton of sense in the century. So I think if there's a technological innovation, it may well be how do we leverage technology effectively to communicate the truth of scripture to our people all week long so that when we gather together as a people on Sunday morning, that gathering no longer has to be primarily for the teaching and lecturing of doctrine, but can be for the engagement in community to love one another as Christ called us, to encourage one another as we gather together, as Hebrew says, to participate in his table as one another, as an expression of unity across race and gender and economic and social economic boundaries. Like, what if we use our physical space for that rather than as a lecture hall? The lecture hall model was fine for hundreds of years. Technology has now usurped that necessity. So why don't we use our physical spaces for what technology can never replace, which is community? That would be my challenge. Such a good word. Um, and yeah. uh, you, th- thanks for thanks for challenging our, our listeners uh, to that kind of vision. To me, coming out of this year and a lot of what we're committing to as a team and myself uh, sort of personally, as we think about sort of new models and new methods, sort of new new ways of thinking and doing for a new kind of church um, anchored to this, the, the sort of the truth of scripture, but also looking historically at some of the things that you're talking about, Sky, which is why do we do it the way we're doing it? And uh, are there better ways now in our current moment to, to follow Jesus? So thank you so much for sharing, uh, Kimberly and Sky. Uh, yeah. uh, such, such a great uh, conversation and uh, so grateful for you joining us on Church Pulse Weekly. Well, I'm so glad that uh, we're asking the deeper questions here. And this really is like, we're not out of the pandemic. I know they're starting to talk about moving into endemic, but hey, this is a focal point. This is a hinge point for the church. And I think when you look back decades from now, it's going to be, well, what did you do on the other side of COVID? Did you end up doing the same thing, hoping for better results? Or was this a chance to really 
rethink everything. So got a number of fascinating conversations. I'm going to sit down with Joe Saxton in early November. Then we've got Ben Windle and Jay Kim coming up. Aaron and Michelle Reyes are joining us in mid-November. And then uh, I've got a conversation with Rick Warren coming up as well. David and I do that one. So uh, I'm very excited for those conversations. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Make sure you subscribe, share it with a friend if you found this helpful, and we'll catch you next time on Church Pulse Weekly. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.